We are excited to be with you this morning. Thank you for being with us online. We're thankful for those that are here in person as well. A lot of new faces, some faces that I have not seen for a long time in a while. We welcome you back. We are thankful that you are with us today. We are actually going to have gifts for those who come back to us, uh, who haven't seen us in a long time. If you're a church member, this is your first time back this week. We have a little something for you, and we want to pray over you. So if you'll meet us in the chapel, the prayer team in there, and I'll be on that team, want to spend some time saying hello and and praying with you. Um, But we are in our series, Where Do We Go From Here, right? We're coming uh, from a year-long pandemic. Uh, It is... It is, I think it is now a year long. Uh, It has been one year of trying to figure out what is going on in our world. And now we have figured it out. No, we haven't figured anything out. And we're still going from here. But where do we as the church go from here? And God has really placed on my heart this opportunity for us as a church to go back to the basics Love Christ and live his mission. Here's how that is lived out and what we hold dear at Northwest Baptist as we love Jesus. And these are our five core values that we've been working through through the book of Philippians. Number one is worship, worshiping God with all of our life, worship driving this discipleship that we are to accomplish his mission. Everything that we do is driven by the worship of God, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then we get to our second core value, which is prayer. And everything begins in prayer. We are a people of prayer. Nothing happens outside of prayer. We have our new prayer room that is getting started. We have our prayer team that is praying on Sunday mornings. There was, when I walked in there, it was 10 to 12 people in there praying for this morning that the power of the word of God would transform the lives of people. We also have our third core value, which is community. And we saw that last week, community of faith that strives side by side for the sake of the, of the gospel. Paul talks about for your progress and for your joy in the faith. And then we come to number four, which is the word of God. We'll see it in this text as the word of life. Our sole authority is God's word. It is of utmost importance that we know the word of God and learn to obey the word of God. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture that every word is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting and training us in righteousness. It is that which transforms our life. It is not just hearing of the word, but responding to the word, which will be next week, love in action. But we must live obediently to the word of God. If you're wondering how do you get these core values in this this way, worship, prayer, community, 
word of God, and then our last one, love in action. You actually get this because this is actually um, how I actually disciple people. Worship, prayer, community, word of God, love in action. And so we begin with thanksgiving, we pray, we have accountability in community, we study the word of God together, and then we respond to the word of God with our life. That's discipleship, and those are our five values. That's how we do it. That's how we train our hearts to love God and live his mission. So we're opening the book to Philippians chapter two, verse 12, and it is very uh, great passage of scripture. Again, every time you open to Philippians, it seems like it's another passage of scripture that just hits you right in the heart, and this is no different. Philippians chapter two, Paul's writing to the, the Philippian church. If you'll stand in honor of reading God's word, we believe that this is the authority. We believe in the inerrancy of scripture, and so we stand in honor of reading this together. Philippians chapter two, verse 12. Here we go. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, sh you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today that transforms our life. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to hear what you have to speak to us through the spirit of the living God. May you transform our minds and our hearts, leading us to be people who are obedient to your word. We thank you for this church and the many, many people that are here, that are part of the kingdom of God, that are advancing the kingdom, that are living their life out for the gospel. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. As I read this to you and as I've studied this all week, I probably bit off a little more than I could chew with this section of scripture. I could have probably preached to you verses 12 and 13 and be good, right? But uh, the Lord had me go all the way to 18, so that's where we're going to go and we'll see how it goes. But the Bible gives us many metaphors to tell us what the word of God is like if you've read the Bible all the way through, you'll see many, many times the Lord gives these metaphors of what the word of God. It's like a sword that pierces. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, for the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It pierces right into the heart. The Bible also tells us the word of God is like a mirror that reveals to us James 1.23 says, for anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and once he forgets what he was like, the mirror that reveals who we actually are. The Bible tells us that the word of God is like a seed that reproduces. First Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. It's like a milk that nourishes. First Peter 2.2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Some translations say the milk of the word. It's like a milk that nourishes. It's like seed that reproduces. It's like a lamp that shines. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. It's a light in the darkness. Bible also calls the word of God a fire that consumes. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. There you go, is, there, is your seventh metaphor, a hammer. The word of God is like a hammer. As I was reflecting on these metaphors of how the word of God is described Throughout the Bible, I realized what all of these things have in common. If if I can remember them to you, it's a sword that pierces, a mirror that reveals, seed that reproduces, milk that nourishes, lamp that shines, a fire that consumes, a hammer that shatters. They're all tools. This weekend, I actually spent the majority of the weekend trying to catch up from much neglected yard work and outdoor work. And of course, I needed a chainsaw, a sword that pierces, right? I also needed to look at my yard for what it truly is, not the best in town. And I needed to look at it through a mirror. I needed a seed that reproduces the grass where it was bare. I needed some nourishment. So when I I went for a cup of milk, when it got dark, I needed a lamp to shine as I worked. I needed a fire to consume my cut down branches. I needed a hammer to break apart the old fence. It was almost as if I needed all of these tools to accomplish my mission, which my daughter would say is yard of the month, daddy. No, I'm probably way far away from that. But God's word is the tool that he uses to transform his people working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's almost as if we Christians have this multi-tool 
and have forgotten how the word of God is really what we need for this life. Sometimes I think to myself, have we forgotten the power in the word of God to transform one's life? Paul reminds us here in this text that we are to hold fast to the word of life. He tells us this by reminding us that we are to grow towards Christ's likeness. Thus don't grumble and complain as if we didn't have what we needed to be children of God in this crooked and twisted generation. Shine as lights holding fast to this word of life. This is encouragement to us. The church should be encouragement to us this morning. The word of God transforms our life, amen? Through the power of his spirit. We begin this section of scripture here with the word therefore. Look at verse 12, therefore. Whenever you see this word, therefore, we must understand we cannot understand what comes after the word therefore until we have understood what precedes it. Now you know what the word therefore is there for, right? So what precedes it? Well, in verse 9, we have another word, therefore. So I'm going to go all the way back to verse 5, and I'll start there in verse 5. Reminder, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of Christ's obedience and his death on the cross, Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So now we know what the therefore is stands for. Let me summarize. Because of Jesus' humility and sacrifice, he has been exalted above every name and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, Jesus is Lord. And Paul says, knowing this, I give you, therefore, my beloved, those whom I love, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is our first point this morning, which is work out your salvation because God is at work in you. Work out your salvation because God is at work in you. You read this, and this is a terrifying verse. Work out your salvation, your own salvation, with fear 
and trembling. When you read this, you, you might take a double take on this verse. Did I read that right? Work out your own salvation? What does that mean? Does it mean that my salvation is not secure? Does it mean that I must work to earn it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Scripture is clear. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 tells us, for you have been, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. He's clarifying. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, just to make sure you understand. So that no one may boast. And then he says, but, or for, because you're saved by grace through faith, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God actually saves us for a purpose, his purpose, which we were actually created for in the first place. So naturally, since we have been granted this great salvation, should we not strive to reflect Christ's likeness with our life, to be his workmanship in which we were created to do, to do good works? You see, salvation in the Bible is mentioned as a past, present, and future. Salvation is past, present, and future. How, how can that be? It's past in our justification. We saw in the, in the previous verse, for grace you have been saved. Past tense. Your sins were wiped away. You were forgiven by the blood of Christ. This is salvation from the penalty of sin. This is the initial time in which you confessed Christ as Lord. You believe and trust in him fully for your sins. It is a past justification. The Bible also mentions salvation as presently happening. To those who have been justified, we call that your sanctification as God is transforming this lowly body to reflect Christ's likeness through the power of his spirit. This is exactly what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the cross of folly, is, for, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Present tense. To us who are being saved. This is God's salvation from the power of sin. The progressive growth of a believer to be obedient to the word of God. God is transforming. He is not done when you come to faith in Christ and are given the Holy Spirit. He is continuing to transform your life. You are being saved. John 17, 17, I love this. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How does he do that? How does he sanctify, make us holy by the word of God through the truth? So 
So work out your salvation is a present imperative. It is to work out, to cause, to produce your own salvation. Guess what? Spoiler alert, this is what God does. He produces a glorious salvation to those who surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does. He produces a glorious salvation. The Bible also mentions salvation as future. So past, present, and future. We call it glorification. Romans 13, 11, For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The future salvation is the salvation from the presence of sin. When we will be glorified in our new bodies and not have any presence of sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin, saved from hell when we receive Christ and are justified. Salvation from the power of sin in your life through the sanctification process, your growth in Christ's likeness, and salvation from the presence of sin, the future glory when we, there will be no more sin and all things will be made new. So we're in this growth process. Paul is talking about this working out your salvation with fear and trembling as striving for Christ-likeness. And as we grow in Christ, we are to always be reminded of who Christ is, verses 9 through 11 And this is where you get the fear and trembling. Who is Christ? Well, he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is the one who is given all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the gracious and merciful God, but he is also a God of justice and wrath, and he will come as the good judge who pours out his judgments accordingly. The phrase fear and trembling come from the word phobos or fright and trembling means shaking, which we get the word tremor from. Paul probably had these Old Testament verses in mind when he wrote this text. Psalm 111.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's wisdom? Application of knowledge. All those who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Always talk about wisdom in this way. You know that the stop sign is there. Some of you know the word of God well. But wisdom applies the brakes when you see the stop sign. Wisdom is knowledge in action. Isaiah 66, 2. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that's your fear and the trembling. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one whom I will look, who, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He lives in obedience to the word of God. Because they recognize who their Lord 
is. See, a lack of fear of who God actually is, a lack of understanding of who Christ is, and you can read this in Revelation. It's one of the great blessings of reading the book of Revelation is to see Christ as he is. A lack of fear leads to a continued apathy in the life of believers. I don't know if you read this, but Patrick Mahomes, he just signed a 10-year, I think this happened a while back, but he signed a 10-year, $503 million contract. 10-year, $503 million contract to quarterback play with an oblong ball on a 100-foot field, okay? So just to put that in perspective, 477 million of that is guaranteed. That means he gets it even if he doesn't play again. He gets in a car accident, 477 million. It's kind of a big contract, I would say. And he's guaranteed to receive the award. Yet, I believe he's still going to work as hard as he can to continue to play at the top of his game even though he has already received it. But what if Patrick Mahomes, who had been given this large contract, said, you know what, I, I, I like my potato chips a lot. And I really like WandaVision and some of these other shows And so I'm going to really dig into this potato ship thing on my couch watching Netflix or Disney+. Plus. I think I'm going to sit out this summer from practice and not work throwing the ball. That's not really what I want to do. I'm really just going to get really good at Candy Crush, right? So I'm devoting my time to that. You see, as a Christian, we've already been given eternal life. And yet, we strive for Christ's likeness. Because we have experienced his love, and now he is our life. There is nothing else. I'm sure that is what Patrick Mahomes would probably say. What else is there than football? What else is there than to live a life for the glory of God for a Christian? You're striving. Paul talks about this throughout the book. Striving and pressing on. Work out. And guess what? God doesn't just leave you alone to do that all by yourself. Look at verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He begins the book with this, and I've held off on giving you this just for dramatic pause. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you're saved, He's bringing you to completion. He is growing you. He is sanctifying you. He is making you holy. But that doesn't mean that we stop working. That doesn't mean we just say, oh, the Lord's got this. Let me get my bag of potato chips and let me just let him 
make me holy. We work out our salvation because he is Lord. He is our life. He doesn't just abandon us at salvation and say, go figure it out. He works in you. The four here is because, so summary, the third four at the beginning is because Christ is highly exalted and worthy to be Lord. Therefore, continue working out your salvation in obedience because God is working in you. Verse 14, do nothing, oh, I'm sorry, that's another verse I've memorized, but do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. You look at that and you go, what, what is he talking about? Why are these verses actually here? We just got done talking about this sanctification, working out our salvation. Guess what? This is the opposite of working out your salvation. This is the opposite of growth in Christ, grumbling and questioning. The thought here is, God, what are you doing? Instead of living in obedience to God's word, we grumble and question the word of God. For those of you who have a teenager, I'm not there yet, but I'm guessing you understand this completely. Will you take out the trash? Why should I have to take out the trash? I have important things to do because I'm really important. Do you know how many Instagram followers I have? It's the same thought of the Israelites in the wilderness, right? Grumbling, questioning, complaining. Lord, you just miraculously saved us from the most powerful nation on the earth, Egypt. You parted the Red Sea and crushed our enemies. But we don't have any food and water. Let's go back to Egypt. Oh Lord, we're here at the promised land. You've taken us this far. You've delivered us. We're, we're here at the promised land. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. We have everything we could ever ask for, but these people are too big. Their cities are too fortified. We can't continue on. You see, there's really no room for discontentment in the people of God. What does it say? It says all things. All things without grumbling or questioning. There is no room because God has given us salvation. He is working in us to sanctify us and he will bring us to glory. Amen? Paul Paul reaffirms this. There is no discontentment in the Christian life. In Philippians 4.11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is where we as the people of God must be different than the world. I think that in our world today, there are a lot of people who spend most of their time, most counting a number of hours throughout the day, grumbling and complaining. 
Like I always read these like news articles and people will write like what they think of the news article on the bottom of the screen. Do you know what I'm talking about? You read this news article and there's a bunch of people talking about it on the bottom. I don't know who they are, how they have like usernames or what they do. I'm not really sure about all that, but they just talk about how bad the writer wrote and how bad the person is and what the, what the happened and how terrible everything is going. And you're kind of like, you just spent your time to talk on this news article? Like, why? We must be different. Arguing and complaining, grumbling and complaining. We must be the people who live out their faith in Christ because God is at work in and through you. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. This is our second point this morning. Fix your attention on the word of life. That hold fast, that word there, hold fast. Fix your attention to lots to unpack in this section, but blameless and innocent. Sounds like Christ-likeness, perfect and complete, not lacking in anything. These, these children of God are without blemish in the midst of a crooked and, and twisted generation. Does that sound familiar? That was the first century church. You, you thought that your generation was crooked. Every generation from the beginning of time was crooked in the first family, the first sons of Adam killed one another because they were jealous. Cain kills Abel because of his jealousy. Is that not twisted? Crooked and twisted generation. Guess what? We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Crooked in the, in the Greek comes from something that's bent or curved or twisted, not straight. Signifying anything that deviates from God's standard. Deviation from God's standard. He has given us the standard according to his word. And twisted is, has this connotation of perversion. We don't have to look very far in our world in its inability to measure up to God's standard and its perversion of what God says according to his word. There are many things that God has actually created for good. Sex within marriage is actually one of his good creations. And the perversion of that is endless in our world. Something that's thrown in our face all the time. Adultery, pornography, homosexuality. Sexual immorality is just a perversion of what God has created as good. 
God has created sexual identity of a male and a female as good. Different roles and functions. Last time I checked, only women can actually give birth to a human. And the world continues to pervert this sexuality to where it's a choice rather than a God-given trait to embrace. And yet the world wants us to grumble and complain about our own sexuality. To despise and reject one's own sexuality. Then you, then you get into all sorts of, abor- of perversion, sex trade, abortion, social injustice, false teachings of the Bible, false religions. I can go on and on. The world has taken what is good and straight and made a way to make it crooked and twisted. But the church, the people of God, the children of God shine brightly as the lights in the world. Again, God saved you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, right? And he's working in you to do that, to fulfill that. So how do you do that? You hold fast to the word of God. Holding fast to the word of life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers." You shine as lights in the, word, in the world, holding fast to the word of life. The word of life here refers specifically to scripture and more specifically to the gospel itself. Jesus says in John six sixty three, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are the spirit our spirit and life. John later tells us in 1 John that the word of life, he uses that phrase, the word of life was manifest in Christ and we are to hold fast, fix our attention on the word of life, Christ himself. Now some will say, is the word of God really life-giving? And I want to I address that. Because to some, even Christians, the word of God is a bit intimidating. It, it, they feel like it's more of a set of rules to cramp my style than it is word of life. I want to play by my own rules, set my own desires. That's popular in our world today. I actually saw somewhere that they're playing now a mix between basketball and wrestling. They call it rugball. So think of guys in singlets, singlets trying to put a ball in a hoop with everyone being tackled at, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. I've seen the highlights. 
Don't ask me how I did that. It may be good to some, but to others who enjoy the game of basketball, it makes basketball unrecognizable. It takes the beauty out of the game that was created. While some believe that they are actually making something beautiful by going outside of God's design and what we would call sin, really what they're doing is perverting what God has created as good. And that's what sin does. God's design is perfect. And once we trust in the goodness and the grace of God, we hold fast to the word of life because it brings joy to us. Because our joy is actually in God himself. So we enjoy the rules that you can't tackle someone and pin them on the ground in basketball. Did you know that Christians, and I, and I, I came across this in this passage because when you, when you look at this, and we've been talking about joy for a number of days he says, I might be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. He talks about joy again here. Did you know that Christians actually pursue their own joy? They have found that the secret to joy is God himself. And thus, in the pursuit of God himself, they are actually pursuing their own joy. John Piper actually coins this phrase, and he calls it Christian hedonism. Underlying the truth of Christian hedonism is the idea that God has designed each of us with an innate desire to pursue happiness. The problem is not that we seek pleasure. The problem is that we seek pleasure apart from God. In the Bible, God does not condemn people for seeking happiness, but for seeking it in ways that ignore, neglect, or rebel against God himself. Hebrews eleven twenty four says this, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pressures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What's the reward? Paul talks about the prize. The reward is glory. Being with God for eternity. Our joy in God himself. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 16, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The day of Christ, speaking of the reward in heaven. The Lord judges the unrighteous and rewards those who are his children. Paul cares about the Philippian church. 
He cares about their walk with Christ. He cares first and foremost for their salvation, but also their sanctification and their growth in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them deeply to obey the teachings that he has passed on to them as every shepherd does. That's a good shepherd. In verse 17, we'll end here. It says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And this is the last verse. The Lord wouldn't allow me to cut there. He wanted me to continue. It says this, rejoice with those who have sacrificed their life for Christ. Rejoice with those who have sacrificed their life for Christ. Paul has has given his life for the sake of the Philippian church. He has devoted his life for the progress and joy of those he has discipled. And this image of the sacrificial offering of their faith, the main sacrifice was their faith. The secondary portion of his Paul's life given to the church as a drink offering, which pictures this, this, this wine, sometimes water, poured over the sacrifice as an aroma towards God in this sacrifice. Of course, this relates back to Christ's sacrifice for us. And it would be natural for Paul to give this image of giving his life for the church. Luke 22, 20, Jesus, after, after taking the cup, after they had eaten, he says, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This picture of Christ being poured out. His blood for his people. Paul is saying, a very similar thing in which he has given his life and his life is a drink offering. And I rejoice in that. I find joy in giving my life so that you may have faith. It's going back to the point of Philippians. Live like Christ. Paul certainly did that. And he wants to find joy or those who he has given his life to to find joy. And he, he turns to them and he says, you ought to rejoice with me as well. Live like Christ. It's not escaped my attention that we have many saints in this room and online with us who have given their life for the sake of Christ, who have lived obedient to the word of God or tried to live obedient to the word of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. They've poured themselves out as an offering for others' sake in a Christ-like way and we ought to rejoice Every person that finishes the race, we as a church will rejoice. 
I see it every day. Very difficult to finish in today's world. Yet in Christ, God's people will overcome through the word of life that is implanted in their hearts. But we must not neglect the word of God. We as the people in this church must hold to the word of God. We must search the scriptures. We must understand the scriptures so that we can shine as lights in this world. Because Christ is our life. Will you stand with me in prayer? Lord, we come before you now as a people, humbly, knowing that each and every person in this room at some point in their life has lived in disobedience to your word. We may be doing that now. We come before you, Father, in humility and fearing and trembling at your word, understanding that you are Lord of lords and King of kings, that you have called us to live a separate life from the ways of this world, that you have called us to live according to your word. Father, give us the strength, the passion, and the energy to not only see and hear the word, but respond to the word of God in obedience to it. Father, humble us as the people of God to repent and rejoice in living according to your word. Help us to rejoice in the people who impact our life. Father, help us to rejoice in the saints who will be leaving us in the future. Help us to rejoice. Help us to finish the race. In Jesus' name we pray.